Welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here working with our preaching team. And if you're visiting with us, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for spending the morning worshiping the Lord Jesus with us. Who are the people that you love? Do you love your parents? Do you love your children? Do you love your grandchildren? Are there friends you look out for? Are there people you're fond of? Do you identify with a certain group so that you love that group? Perhaps an ethnic group or a career group or an organization or a personality type? Or do you have empathy for another group that gives you love for them? Hurricane victims, the poor, the underprivileged. One mark of love for people, for a class of people, is that you want to help them, even if it costs you something. And so as we continue our story of 1 Thessalonians, in order to help us understand the work of a first century missionary named Paul, we come this morning to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 640. It will also be up on the screen. In this chapter, Paul gives the most detailed description in all of his letters of how he went about helping people to walk with Christ. And before I walk through the passage, I want to point out the motivation for all of it. The reason why Paul and his teammates did what they did, why they avoided what they avoided, it's in the last phrase of verse 8, tucked in this passage. Because you had become very dear to us. For Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy writing this letter, none of this stuff that they're, they're going to talk about that they did, none of it was to get a Sunday school badge or to get special recognition at missionary conferences. No, these people had simply become very dear to him. And when people become dear to you, you want to help them. This is what happens when you let people in, when you open your heart to them, when you subject yourself to the torture of rising and falling with their fortunes and with their calamities. This is what happens when you allow people to become very dear to you. You will want to help them. And you will want to help them in a way that sets them up for the long term. And by long term, I'm not talking about their retirement years. I'm talking about helping people to succeed for eternity. To know Jesus Christ, to walk with him and eventually to enter into the fullness of his kingdom and glory when he resurrects them and remakes heaven and earth to be what they were meant to be without sin and suffering. So now that we've identified this central motivation, that they were simply very dear, we can go back through our passage to see how Paul and his associates went about helping these people they loved. We saw last week in chapter 1 that this church was built on a foundation of faith, love, and hope. Now we'll see that the founding missionaries 
implanted these very virtues into this fledgling community. Faith, love, and hope. And so how did they do it? We'll see on your outline that they used words. We'll see that they used more than words. And we'll see that they gave copious thanks for worthy progress. Let me pray for us and then I'll read the passage. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would please open the eyes of our hearts that we might see wonderful things in your word. Do not hide yourself from us. Grant us to see you and to become more like you, even as we see Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy's example, and we become like them because they became like Christ. Help us to honor you and bless our study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. In the first section of this chapter, Paul is merely reminding the Thessalonian Christians of what they already know. Verse 1 begins with, you yourselves know. And he says it again, as you know, in verses 2, verse 5, and then again in verse 11. 
You know, you know, you yourselves know. And what is it that they know? Verse 1, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, our visit to you was not pointless. It was not empty of meaning or empty of activity. And why was it not in vain? What did Paul and his associates do such that it was not a pointless visit? And what they did definitively in these verses is they spoke. They spoke. And what they spoke was a message approved by God. Verse 2, he says, we had boldness to declare to you the gospel of God. In verse 3, he talks about our appeal. In verse 4, he says, so we speak. Verse 5, again, he talks about our words. These first seven verses are all about the words that Paul and his partners spoke to these people. And what, let's take note of what Paul reminded them about his words. What were his words like? First, they were courageous words. First thing is they were courageous words. Verse 2, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So they were courageous words. They had boldness to speak God's gospel, God's good news, even while they were under fire for doing so. So if you want to help people, you have to have this kind of courage. Courage to speak up when it's not popular to do so. Courage to speak plainly when people are trying to dodge important issues. And courage to speak kindly when groupthink would have you treat certain people as punching bags. And especially, you need to have, if you want to help people, you, you need to have the kind of courage that it takes to tell a story that most would consider outdated, unacceptable, or intolerant. You see, it takes courage to speak of a man who was God, who came from heaven to earth, because otherwise those on earth would never get to heaven. The one who, though he made many enemies and said and did things that would shock people even today, he did everything right according to God's standards. This was a man who died the most shameful death, being treated by both people and by God as though he were the worst of sinners. This was a man who rose again from the dead three days later to show that he had fully paid the debt that we owe to God because of our sin. This was a man who, would you believe it, he flew up into heaven in the sight of a few dozen of his followers in order to sit at, right, at God's right hand such that he now reigns over the world, working out all things according to the pleasure of his will. This is a, a man who is God, who will come back again someday to resurrect all humanity, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. This man, this God, this Jesus, 
is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will reign forever and ever. And to tell this story to people who need help, this requires courageous words. That's the first thing about their words is they were courageous. Second, they were not deceitful words. They were not deceitful words. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Notice the contrasts here. He has two different contrasts. The first contrast is in verse 3. Our appeal is not from an attempt to deceive, but, verse 4, we speak just as we have been approved by God. So we don't deceive, but we've been approved by God, the things we speak. But there's a second contrast at the end of verse 4, that we speak not to please man, but to please God. And so catch this, you put these things together the way he ties them together. If we're pleasing God because we're speaking a message of proving to him, he's saying that if you speak to please people, that is inherently deceptive when you put these two contrasts together. We didn't speak to please people in the same breath as we did not speak out of error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Speaking to please people is inherently deceptive Because it communicates that what they think is more important than anything. And I will act as though what you think is more important than anything. And that, friends, is a lie. That's deceptive. So when a parent tells their three-year-old child to come here for bed or to get dressed or to pick up a toy or whatever, come here. And the child refuses, and the parent repeats the command multiple times, and the child throws a fit, and then the parent says something like, I'm, I'm so sorry, honey, that you're having a bad day. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. This parent, in trying to please the child, is lying to the child. This parent is saying that the kingdom of this child shall come And the will of this child shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please give us this day our daily bread. And friends, this will never help the child. In fact, it will do the opposite. By driving the child inward to trust himself or herself instead of driving the child upward to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Helping people requires speaking words that are approved by God and not deceitful. We aim to please God and not people. Third, third thing about these words is that they were not demanding words. In verses 5 through 7, there's another set of contrasts. There's a never, not, not, I'm sorry, never, nor, nor, but. Three things we didn't do and then one thing we did do. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Three things they did not do. 
They never used words of flattery, nor a pretext for greed, nor did they seek glory from people by making demands. But what they did was they were gentle like a nursing mother. Now, these guys were apostles. He says it right there in verse 6. That means that they were sent directly by Jesus. Jesus appeared to them visibly and sent them to these people to plant this church. If anyone could pull rank with these people, it would be Paul. It would be these guys. And in others, other letters of his, Paul is not afraid to pull rank when people are perverting the story about Jesus. So he'll do that when he needs to. But here, with these people, no, they never made demands here. They were gentle like nursing mothers. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not familiar with nursing mothers, you need to understand a few things about this metaphor. You see, a nursing mother has a very little person that she loves and she wants to help. So she gives that child access to a very private, a very sensitive part of her body. And sometimes it can be uncomfortable or even painful for her to do this because sometimes these little ones do bite. And the nursing mother, when that happens, she does not grab the child, throw it to the ground, and shout, Get off me! Quite the opposite. She pulls the child closer with even greater gentleness and vulnerability. This is how a true helper speaks in the name of Jesus Christ. Courageous words, not deceitful words, and not demanding words. There's a famous saying, sometimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's not really documented clearly that it's him, but whoever, there's this saying, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. The point of this saying when people say it today is that we should typically not resort to words when we share the good news about Jesus, that our actions should speak loud enough. But friends, this is not biblical. Always use words. Always. Not demanding words, not arrogant words, not condescending words or preachy words, but courageous words approved by God words and gentle words. And yes, once we use words, then we must go ahead and use more than words. Words are not enough. So the second paragraph, they describe how they used more than words. In verses 8 through 11, we see how Paul's words translated into action. In verse 8, he says, we shared not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. In verse 9, you remember our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. In verse 10, they say that their conduct was publicly holy, righteous, and blameless. They did not act like everybody else. They they did what was right such that no one could accuse them of any wrongdoing. In verses 11 and 12, 
he says that we exhorted and encouraged you like fathers with their children. Also, you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The point of this paragraph is that he, he tells us that, that they used more than words. What they offered was not mere words, it was their very lives. And as they preached about Jesus, they made sure that in the process they did not create a burden for anybody because they wanted nothing to get in the way of the message. Now think about this by way of application. How many teachers teach in order to feel personal satisfaction in their teaching? It's just to give one example of a helping kind of position. How many of us teach to feel personal satisfaction in our teaching? In so doing, we create a burden that no student can carry. There is no problem with feeling personal satisfaction from teaching. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have that feeling. But if that is your primary driving motivation for why you teach and what you're trying to get out of teaching, in other words, if you're in it more for how you feel than for how you can help others, then you will burden your students with expectations and demands they'll never live up to. No wonder we who teach can get easily annoyed by the students who can't or won't keep up or who can't or won't make us look good. Shows us we're in it for us, not for them. To take another example, how many parents speak down to their grown children but refuse to let them in? In other words, we never admit any personal wrongdoing. We never ask our son or our daughter for forgiveness. We never let them into our lives so that they can see a sinner saved by grace and struggling with walking with the Lord Jesus. For another example, how many governments of developed countries try to help the undeveloped world by dumping financial aid on them? Eric's going to talk about this a bit in, in his, his seminar. Because if it's not accompanied by a sharing of lives, by a personal investment, by training and modeling and guiding and equipping them to succeed on their own, then financial aid, along with all the words of well-wishing, will cause more hurt than help. And so we can see this very principle at work in so many different realms of helping people. All the different ways we can try to help people. So Paul's model for helping people to walk with Christ involves using words. It involves using more than words, which here means acting blamelessly and in a way that doesn't create burdens for the people you wish to help. But third and finally, it involves giving copious thanks for worthy progress. Finally, this is what Paul does. He doesn't just speak at them. Though he does do that. And he doesn't just act toward them, though he does do that. But he also praises God for them. And he celebrates progress with them. First, he gives thanks for how they responded to his words. Read verse 13 again. We, 
we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he gives thanks for how they received the word as the word of God. And second, he gives thanks for how they imitate those who endure persecution. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, another part of the world, back in Palestine. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The idea here is that the people we try to help, they need to hear from us that they are making progress. They need to hear from us that the lessons are sinking in because otherwise they might not know it. They need to hear from us that their lives are changing because otherwise they might not see it. And they need to hear from us that their suffering is worth it because otherwise they might not feel like it. There's a reason that even secular educational psychology speaks of the importance of praise and affirmation because people need to hear praise and thanks far more than criticism, far more frequently. This is why I've tried to make a practice as a father out of repeating a few mantras with every one of my children every day. Every morning, each of my children get a hug and I say, good morning, I love you, I'm so happy you're in my family. It gets a little crazy with six, it makes it hard to get out the door, but what happens? And even if there's a day when I don't see them until afternoon or evening due to traveling, I still say, good morning, I love you, and we laugh about it. It's not morning. Every night at bedtime, I tell my daughters, I love you. You are my beautiful daughter. And every night at bedtime, when I'm tucking my sons away, I echo to them the words of God to Jesus at his baptism. I say, you are my son. I love you. I'm very pleased with you. If Jesus needed to hear those words from his father, how much more do we, weak and sinful creatures, need to hear them? And sometimes I say the wrong thing to a child of the opposite gender on purpose just to see if they're paying attention. I love taking my children out one-on-one. It doesn't happen as much as I'd like. Maybe about every other week I have time for a date with one child, and, and this is not the only thing we do on those dates. Mostly we just have fun. But one of my goals is to reflect to each one of them how I see God working in their lives. Now, I'm not saying these things to you to try to communicate that I'm a perfect father. I'm saying this because I think my words of criticism still far outweigh my words of praise to them. And I am challenged by this passage to rebalance those things. What about you? As you consider the people you love, could you honestly say to them, I thank God constantly for your progress. Maybe you have trouble being a thankful person in general. In which case, you can certainly benefit from this passage and learn to be a different kind of leader. 
But maybe when you're trying to help somebody, maybe the progress in that person is slow and it's just really hard to find something worthy of thanks in them. And if that's the case, your mission as a leader is to make a greater effort to look for something, look for anything praiseworthy. Perhaps you're just so focused on the problems and the failures and the weaknesses and all the things that need to change that it's difficult for you to see the strengths at all. In addition, when it's time to discuss a matter with someone or with a group of people, is your first are the first words out of your mouth words of criticism? When it's time to evaluate or even to just process what you're thinking, are you quick to complain or to attack? I'm not saying that we shouldn't criticize. Criticism is very important and life-giving. We, we all need to, to help one another and sharpen one another as we grow up together in under Christ Jesus, who is the head of this body. So I'm not saying that we don't criticize. I'm just saying that thanksgiving should come first and thanksgiving should come more abundantly than criticism. So if you are teaching Sunday school this morning, please take a moment to tell your class something about them you thank God for. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, please take some time this afternoon to tell your children or your grandchildren something about them that you thank God for. And if you're a student, please tell another student something about them that you thank God for. And if you're an adult and your parents are living and it would be appropriate in your relationship, please call your parents in the next few days and tell them something about them that you thank God for. And if you are a child, please tell your parents or your teacher something that you thank God for about them. Our thanks should be copious. This is one important way we help those we love. We should be able to tell them, I thank God for you constantly because fill in the blank. Now, I can't leave this point without sharing how much I praise God for all of you. I love this church. I am so thankful to God for you people in it. You know, that phrase, you people, is usually negative, but I mean it with love. I praise God for you people. I constantly thank God for you all because you love God's word. You have become firmly convinced that this is not merely a human book, but that when you read this book and when we study it and teach it together, you have become convinced that God is speaking to you through this book. And you love to have it explained and you love to explain it to each other and you love to discuss it and to consider it and to evaluate your lives in light of it. I have no greater joy than to see you receiving God's word and standing fast in his truth. So in conclusion, why do we do all this? Why do we speak words that are courageous and not deceitful and not demanding? Why do we live lives that are blameless and don't put burdens on other people? and exhort them to walk with the Lord? Why do we give copious thanks 
for worthy progress? Why do we go through all this effort to help the people that we love? Paul reminds us of this once again at the end, even when he speaks of the persecution of the Christians in Palestine that they faced by the Jews. He mentioned the Jews in verse 14, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. You see, if there was one thing that would get Paul riled up, it was this. When people would hinder him from speaking to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people of all nations and ethnicities, why would that fire him up so much? It says right in verse 16, because we speak that they might be saved. The point of all of this helping people in these 16 verses that we've read is not merely to make the world a better place, though hopefully that will happen. But we act in faith, in love, and in hope. We use words, we use more than words, and we give copious thanks so that people might be saved. It's because I don't deserve to know God, and you don't deserve to know God. None of us did anything to deserve this relationship with God or this special opportunity to help other people. And so just as Jesus has saved us and rescued us from the wrath to come, so we also want to be a part of helping others find rescue as well. The things in this passage are not merely techniques to help you get ahead as a people person. These things are a matter of life or death. These are things of salvation or damnation. And may all praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us that he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus so that we might be saved. <coughs> and thank you for giving us the opportunity to be a part of this work. Please help us to be a people who help and who don't hurt. Grant us the opportunity to help people in a way that sets them up to succeed for eternity, that they might walk with you, that they might know you. Help us to be these kinds of people. And Lord, thank you for the incredible progress you've given us so far. Help us not to be content with that and not to sit back and rest, but help us to keep pressing on in this work that you are doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.